You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so Bezras Hashem, tonight we're going to be continuing and perhaps ending, although I'm not sure yet, the series on Rabbi Nachman and the possibility of joy. But whether or not tonight is the ending, it is certainly the culmination of the Eitzos, or the practical suggestions that Rabbi Nachman, in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, in the name of all of the Tzadikim, have given us in terms of learning how to live a life of joy in a world where joy is specifically something that is the most difficult thing imaginable. And like we said, Rabbi Nachman, first and foremost, corrects our false understanding of the nature of joy by letting us in on the secret that joy is certainly not something that is simple. It's certainly not something that is even expected. And sometimes it appears to be an impossibility. And it is first and foremost, the confrontation with that reality with the precondition of joy being hard and sadness and despondency being somewhat more reasonable at times in life, that Rabbi Nachman begins teaching us how to be joyous. Like we said, that one of the more important framings of Rabbi Nachman's maisim, or the Sipuri Maisios that Rabbi Nachman told towards the end of his life was the Maisim Eshiva Habatlarim, the tale of the seven beggars. And that tale didn't only start off with the promise of teaching us how to be joyous out of despondency itself. When Rabbi Nachman said, I will tell you once upon a time how there was a time where we were joyous from within despondency itself. But rather the very framing of the narrative of the tale gives us a very important insight into the nature of life and, and really the fragility of life. Now the fragility of life which is very often seen as a, a negative kind of distorted way of looking at things in Rabbi Nachman and in Hasidus in general, and really in Panimiya Satora, is transformed by from being something negative into being the very precondition in which meaning is cultivated. But for our purposes, we'll use the very poignant and very acute sentiment expressed by Rabbi Nachman at the beginning of the 13th tale to kind of convey what we've been talking about until now that as the narrative begins, Rabbi Nachman tells the tale of a king, a living king, who threw a ball, he threw a celebration for a joyous occasion. And what was that joyous occasion? That joyous occasion was that the king desired to transfer his kingship to his son, even while the king was still alive. Now, this was a novelty because typically monarchy like anything else, was transferred through nepotism. It was after the king had died. Then the prince would take his rightful place as king. But here we had a king who desired to transfer his kingship to his son while he was still alive. 
Now, while that is a, it's a difficult concept to discuss, it's a, a lengthy topic to discuss, nevertheless, suffice it to say that the desire of the king to transfer kingship to his child while the king is still alive can be understood in the metaphor of the true king being Hashem and the prince or the child of the king being Klal Yisrael. And the nace of what Hashem wants to offer Klal Yisrael is the ability for us to be the vessels through which the light of godliness is revealed in the world. That the king does not want to be the only one who is expressing his kingship, but rather the king, even in his lifetime, would like his children to convey and express kingship, which is the secret of the Jewish neshama, the source of the soul, which emerges from the loftiest of places, which gives a certain power, so to speak, of the Jewish people to move God's hand, for us to tell HaKadosh Baruch Hu what we want, for us to have kingship. The power of tefillah, which is the capacity to change God's mind, so to speak. As Rabbi Nachman and other tzaddikim tell us very often in the name of Chazal, that when we find the language in Tehillim of Lamanatseach, what Chazal say is Lamanatseach means Mizamrim Lemishamanatskinboy, that we are praising, we are singing to He who we are victorious over. And He who we are victorious over is a reference and appellation for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Just as we see in Chazal very often that the Tanoim themselves have the capacity to dictate and determine the halachic status of reality, even though HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, in the Masifta de Rekia, in the celestial kingdom, Hashem Paskins. Nevertheless, it's the Koyach of Chazal, it's the Koyach of Torah Shabal Peh, for our Tzadikim, for our Tanoim, to really say how things really are. Hashem, you say that, that's great. But this is the Metzias for us, and it's really the Nishmas Yisrael, the part of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which expresses itself specifically through us, through the son of the king, that is capable of receiving kingship. But what the king says to his son is as follows. He says, listen, I'm going to give you kingship, and it's going to be easy for a little bit. But the promise you have to make to me is that when you fall away from kingship, ensure that you remain joyous. Because if you can remain joyous even as your kingship or your royalty dissolves into nothingness, then I'll know that you're worthy of truly being king. But if when things fall away from you and things are no longer functioning the way you would like them to function, you suddenly shift from joy into sadness and despondency. So I'll be happy either way, the king says, because then it will be clear that you're not right or fit to be king. But if you can persevere and you can ensure that you promise to be joyous even when you fall away from joy, even when all of the preconditions and the externalized aspects of your joyous situation dissolve into nothingness, if you can retain your joy then, specifically then, it's there that you're going to prove your capacity to truly be king. And this is really the guiding principle of what we've been discussing, that the title of the shirim has been the possibility of joy. Nobody can give us the secret to joy. But our tzaddikim, what they do is they teach us why joy is a possibility and why a person can utilize their volitional power of bechira, a free will, which remains irreducibly present in our lives, no matter how present Hashem is. Nevertheless, our free choice is always our ability to choose happiness. And Rabbi Nachman understood that for something to be a choice, you have to have opposition in place. And that opposition is very strong. The world itself is the opposite of happiness. The world itself is built upon concealment. It's built upon removal. It's built upon things that fall apart. 
It's built upon things not lasting. It's built upon the transiency of things, all of which create for Rabbi Nachman what we said that Rabbi Nachman famously said, he said, Chevra talk about Olam Haba and how it's difficult to believe in Olam Haba. He said, I have no problem believing in a world to come. I have no problem believing in a world of schar and onesh. I have a bigger problem believing in what? In Olam Hazah. Because people also talk about this world. And he says, that I can't seem to find anywhere. Because when I really look around with my eyes open, I see Gehenim. I see suffering. Each according to their own level. Each according to their own understanding. Each according to their own comfort level. But suffering abounds. Suffering is the unifying factor that allows all human beings to encounter the humanity of the other. And so he says, all I see is Gehenna. I don't see Olam Haza. I believe in Olam Haba. What I don't believe in, Rabbi Nachman says, is Olam Haza. And then Rabbi Nachman famously says, Ki Olam Haza because in truth, there's no world whatsoever. And that's where Rabbi Nachman lets us in on the secret of redemption of our experience, which is to realize that in truth, even our experience in this world is a taste of Olam Haba. But nevertheless, Rabbi Nachman was profoundly aware of the fact that joy was difficult. Why? Because joy emerges from fullness. Joy emerges from a sense of wholeness, a sense of sufficiency, fulfillment. Again, a word that is rooted in the concept of fullness, as if I lack absolutely nothing. As the Maharal points out, the synonym for simcha is shlemus, is fullness, is wholeness, is a sense of perfection. Yet, nevertheless, we know that fullness is an impossibility in this world. A sense of perfection is an impossibility. Not only is it not the spiritual ideal, but someone who thinks they're perfect is in fact the furthest away from spiritual ideals. Because the ultimate apex of religious experience, of spiritual experience, is coming to acknowledge our innermost inherent limitations. Because to be limited means to be a creation. And to be a creation means to recognize my creator. And to recognize my creator always already implies that I will never be capable of being as perfect as my creator. Even if I reach a 99.9, I will never reach the 100. And when I reach 100, then God, so to speak, has transcended that level and become even bigger. My holiness is above your holiness, God says to the Jewish people. And the moment you think you have reached my perfection is the moment you're serving of Odazara. You're serving yourself. So on the one hand, simcha emerges from a sense of wholeness. On the other hand, wholeness is an impossibility. And what we've described is that for Rabbi Nachman, simcha, joy, is drawing a future sense of wholeness into our imperfect present. It's coming to terms with the fact that, yes, I'm imperfect. Yes, things are not the way they need to be. But nevertheless, I can find the inherent fullness and wholeness that exists as things are at the present moment. So joy for Rabbi Nachman, as we've said, is the ability to feel wholeness in spite of the fact that we're still living in deficiency and lack. And this is what Chazal mean when they say, that simcha, happiness, joy, is contingent upon the notion of chelko, of a person being joyous with their lot. A chelek always already implies that it is part of a whole, but not the whole itself because the whole itself is an impossibility. But when a person can take presence and joy in the fact that I have my own chilek, even though I don't have the whole, so that's where joy emerges from. And we went through in the various shirim, different eitzos, different simple suggestions that Rabbi Nachman has given us in terms of how to cultivate joy in this world. One of them was 
first and foremost, a willingness to suspend our need to find approval in the eyes of others, a willingness to recognize that we ultimately live in our own existence with God, and that I don't need to care so much about what others say or what others think, which are more than often simply projections of my own mind. We learned about the capacity of acting foolish for the sake of God, pretending that we're happy, even though we're not happy. Dancing even when we have absolutely no reason to dance, singing when we have no reason to sing, clapping when we have no reason to clap. Again, the capacity to laugh at the world, to take the world seriously, obviously, but to recognize that the world is so profoundly serious that sometimes the bottom drops out and the only thing we could do is laugh at it and to laugh at ourselves, to not take ourselves too seriously. We also spoke of the importance of trying to find joy specifically in places where joy is not present, of forcing sadness into the circle of joy, of learning how to look at the difficult experiences in our life, which are hopefully very simple, with eyes of joy, with eyes of gladness, by forcing the distortion into the music itself, allowing the distortion to, to become something that animates and intensifies and potentiates and manifests the music in a more potent way. And we spoke about the need to focus singularly on the present moment. That's what we spoke about last week. That for Rabbi Nachman, all that exists is the present moment. For the Torah, all that exists is the present moment. Hayom im tishma'u. Today, if you hearken to my voice, if you're willing to listen, Chazal tell us that anytime you see the word hayom today, the implication behind the usage of that word is the notion of tshuva, of return. Because any movement towards the light, any movement towards God, any movement towards peacefulness in our hearts, in our homes, in our relationships is fully contingent and dependent upon the willingness to look only at the moment in front of me and not to be caught up in the depression and sadness of the past over lost opportunities and things that have passed away or to be caught up in the anticipatory anxiety of a future which creates all sorts of distortion. The need is to be present in the present moment. And that's what leads us to where we're at today. The Eitzah that we're going to be talking about today from Rabbi Nachman is quite possibly the essential point within Rabbi Nachman's teachings. Now, in my mind, such a thing can't be said because every point in Rabbi Nachman's teaching seems to become the essential point. Whichever teaching you're learning, whichever teaching you're walking with contains within it all that you need to see. As we spoke about in our previous shirim on Lukutim Maharan, Rav Avram ben Rav Nachman, Rav Avram Tolchiner, the Biur Alikutim, the son of Rabbi Nachman Tolchiner, who was the Talmud Mufak of Rabbi Nassan of Nimarov, who was the Talmud Mufak of Rabbi Nachman, that before his commentary on Likutei Maharan, he wrote Yud Ches Klalim, the 18 hermeneutical principles necessary for understanding the teachings of Torah in general and the teachings of Likutei Maharan specifically. And the first klal, the first principle is that Everything a person could possibly look for is found within each and every teaching to the extent that each and every teaching is a standalone reality. And there is no need to take one teaching and compare it to another, but a person could find whatever they need in each teaching. But we have explicit statements in the name of Rabbi Nassan that the teaching we're going to be looking at today, Torah Reish Pebez, the 282nd teaching in the Kutu Maharan, the first volume, is in truth the essential teaching that Rabbi Nachman wanted to convey. This is a teaching referred to as Azamra, that I will sing out, 
based on the proof text of the Torah, which is Azamra Le'elikim Ba'odi, that I will sing out, I will cry out to God, Ba'odi, with the moreness that I have within myself, which we'll come to understand. But there are Lashonos in various places of Rabbi Nassim writing letters to his son. One of the more beautiful points of, I believe, Jewish literature, Hasidic literature, as well as the literature of Breslov, is a sefer called Alim Latrufa, Healing Leaves. Again, the title implying the very nature of what the sefer conveys, it's medicine. Like we've spoken about numerous times, in order to properly appreciate Panimiya Satora, a person has to shift their mind from thinking that the ideas are nice Torah ideas to a mindset where they see the words themselves as life-saving medicine. Because when a person is reading life-saving medicine, then a person pays attention enough to allow the words to penetrate their heart. Rabbi Nachman was talking to a sick world and a sick generation and sick and broken souls. And some of us, those of us who are attracted so deeply, is because we're sicker than most. It's just that way. Like we said, the insult thrown against the Breslover Hasidim was that Rabbi Nachman did not appoint any heir to the throne, to the chair, to the kisei of Breslov. And they remained somewhat an orphaned Hasidus. They had no Admor, they had no Tzaddik. And the enemies of Breslov, those who misunderstood, those who necessarily misunderstood, they referred to Breslov as Toiter Hasidim, as the dead Hasidim, as the Hasidim who are dead. And while at first glance this appears very much to be an insult, implying the death of a movement, implying the failure of a revolution. Nevertheless, there's another way of reading such an insult, that they're the toiter chasidim, they're the dead chasidim in the sense that even if you're dead, Adarabah, specifically when you feel dead on the inside, it's only Breslov, it's only Rabbi Nachman who's going to be able to reach deeply into you and, and pull you out. Now again, this is a, a series of shirim on Rabbi Nachman, which is why we're talking specifically about Rabbi Nachman right now. Any other series of shirim, whether it be on the Baal Shem Tov, the Balatanya, the Mitla Rebbe, the Vilmagon, the Vilmagon's Talmidim, Rav Salavechik, Rav Kuk, whoever it might be, all of that is still Breslov. It's just learning those Sadikim through the teachings that Rabbi Nachman has enabled us to look at. Because again, for Rabbi Nachman, the essential thing was reading the teachings in a way that it was therapy, that the Torah should become therapy. The Torah that you learn should penetrate your heart and give you insight into how to live your emotional and experiential life with a little bit more light, with a little bit more significance, with a little bit more content. That's the medicine of Rabbi Nachman. And this teaching, Reish Pei Beis, Rabbi Nassim would write to his son in the Sefer Alim Latrufa, healing words, words of healing. It's a book of letters that Rabbi Nassim wrote to his son, Rav Yitzchak, who was living in Svat. Love letters. Letters like any parent would say, why are you still focusing on this? I'm sorry you're struggling. I'm sorry to hear about this, that, or the other thing. Very human letters. But at the same point, it was Rabbi Nassim conveying that what you need is the medicine. You need to remember the teachings that Rabbi Nachman offered us and to live your life according to those principles. And in multiple places in the Sefer, Alim Trufa. Rabbi Nassim says, how many times have I told you, Yitzchak? How many times have I told you that our teacher told us that we have to walk with Reish Pebez, that we have to think about it on a daily basis, that we have to think about the 282nd teaching on a daily basis. And if we think about it on a daily basis, 
then we will be capable of living our lives in a healthier and happier way. Another simon that highlights the importance of this teaching, there's two other simanim. Lukuti Maharan as a Sefer was broken up into two volumes that were printed a few years after one another. The first volume of Lukuta Maharan, Lukuta Maharan Kama, ends with the 282nd teaching. That's the last teaching. And we know, Acharan Acharan Chaviv, we know that when something ends, it's implying that this is the sum total of the teachings. So that's in the first half of Lukuta Maharan. But lo and behold, something I discovered only over the past few days is when you look at the last teaching of the second volume of Lukuta Maharan, in Torah Kuf Chaf Hei of Lukuta Maharan Tinyana, what you find is a Torah about the importance of reading Tehillim and how the essential focus of Tehillim is not simply to read the words of David Malka Mashiach, but to find oneself in the story of David HaMelech, to recognize that we're all David HaMelech. And the battles that David HaMelech went through, we go through. And the spiritual heights and the existential lows that David Malka Mashiach went through, we go through as well. That's the teaching that Rabbi Nachman uses to end Lukut Maharan, to teach us how to daven properly. But the last lines in that last Torah in the second volume of Lukut Maharan are Va'ayin Mizeh Besof Sefer Rishon Besimen Resh Pei Beis Ala Pasuk Azamr Lukim Ba'oidi. And if you want to understand what I'm saying here in the last teaching of the second volume, look at the 282nd teaching, which is the last teaching of the first volume. So what Rabbi Nachman is showing us is that this teaching, Reish Pei Beis, is of utmost significance. It's of utmost significance to the point that it is both the ending of the first volume as well as the second volume. And it's the teaching that Rabbi Nassim told his son he has to walk with. And finally, after Rabbi Nachman's death, Rabbi Nassim of Nimrov, his main disciple, decided to write a parish on the Shulchan Orach based on the teachings of his Rebbe. Because for Rabbi Nachman, there was nothing more significant than studying the Shulchan Aruch. As it's famously said, if somebody were to follow the instructions of Rabbi Nachman in terms of what Torah to learn on a daily basis, the reality is that there's simply more content than the time allotted to a human being. Rabbi Nachman demands almost 25 hours of learning in a 24-hour period. And one of the essential focuses was on Shulchan Aruch. And I believe we've spoken about the fact that Rabbi Nachman writes in Chaim Aharan that in truth, he never wanted to write a Hasidish Sefer. He never wanted to write a Sefer about Pinimiya Satora. He wanted to write a parish on the Shulchan Aruch. He couldn't write a parish on the Shulchan Aruch, so he wrote Lukutimaran, which shows us how the linchpin of halachic observance and engagement with halacha according to the level that a person understands halacha is one and the same with the process that we're going through. And so Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nassan, in his writing, Lekutei Alachos, the first teaching in Hilchas Hashkamas HaBaiker is based on the 282nd teaching of Azam Relelikim I will call out to God with the mourness that I find within myself. Showing us again that the end of Lekutei Maran is Azamra, and the beginning of Lekutei Alachos is Azamra. So this idea that we're going to be discussing, this Eitzah, the simple suggestion as to how to find joy, in a world where joy is almost impossible, is both the main point of Lukutu Maharan, where Rabbi Nachman ends his teachings, as well as the continuity of Breslov, which is where Rabbi, Na Rabbi Nassim starts his teachings. The Eitzah that Rabbi Nachman is going to give us in the 282nd teaching 
is that if a person wants to live a life of joy, if a person wants to live a life of comfort, of calmness, of significance, of meaning, then a person must look at the world through eyes of positivity. That's the teaching. We have to allow our eyes to cleanse themselves of their despondent outlook. And we need to ensure that no matter what we see and no matter what we encounter, we will make the decision to look at it through a positive lens. Reish Pei Beis is about saying yes to life. It's about affirming existence. It's about remembering that when all is said and done, when we're done with all of the size and the difficulty that we encounter, at the end of the day, the Pasuk says, Baruch Sha'amar Vahaya Ha'olam. Well, the Tefillah says, not the Pasuk. Baruch Sha'amar Vahaya Ha'olam. Blessed is he who spoke and created the world. Affirming the value of creation, affirming the value of our lived experience in this world. To be optimistic, to choose to see the good hidden within each and every encounter that we find ourselves in. An unwillingness to deviate even for one moment from the belief, the stubborn belief that there is goodness that saturates everything. Now, Rabbi Nachman commands us to this. The language that he uses is tsarich, because as we've spoken about before, Rabbi Nachman was fully aware of how counterintuitive this was. The natural reaction to the world around us, our own lived experiences with those we care about, with the world that we find ourselves in, our macro systems and our micro systems, the moment in history that we live in, Rabbi Nachman saw it all and he said, Chevra, it's schwer. I get it, it's totally broken. Like all of the tzaddikim taught us. It's a broken thing, I agree with you, but the only way to get through it is to compel yourself to joy. The only way to get through it is to pretend that everything is ultimately good. Because if you pretend that everything is ultimately good, then memela, naturally, things turn out to be ultimately good. This is the Eitzah that Rabbi Nachman is giving us, to see things positively, to affirm value, to encounter difficulty. Sure, Rabbi Nachman is not teaching some sort of magical, unhealthy thinking that ignores difficulty, an immature spirituality that says everything is easy and nothing is hard. Rabbi Nachman was speaking post the breakdown of that immaturity. Rabbi Nachman taught us to gaze at the world and realize things are broken, but nevertheless to reaffirm our belief that everything is good. How is it good? Why is it good? Where is it good? When will it actually manifest as good? We have no idea. We have no idea about anything. The only thing we can do is choose to see good in the world. And Rabbi Nachman teaches this Torah in an incredible way. He opens up with the words as follows. That a person needs to judge the world favorably. A person needs to judge others favorably. And even if that individual is completely devoid of goodness, even if that individual has absolutely nothing positive about themselves, it's a statement of fact. It's not that this person is somewhat good, somewhat bad. Rabbi Nachman says, even the person who is completely devoid of goodness, as if such a thing could exist, nevertheless, a person has to ensure that they find something good within that person. 
a ma'at, a tiny place within that individual where goodness exists. So already Rabbi Nachman is setting us up with a paradox. In order to judge others favorably, in order to judge the world favorably, we have to be willing to find goodness even in the place of the absence of goodness, even when it is devoid of goodness. That's the opening of the teaching. And again, it starts off tsarich. We need to do this. We need to search it out. We need to dig out and find that there is goodness that exists within each and every person, which in each and every encounter, in spite of the fact that on an external and even on an internal level, this individual, this situation, this moment appears to be completely devoid of goodness. Why? How is such a thing possible? If the metzias, if the existence of reality, if the moment itself, my encounter, my experience, this person, this resentment, this problem, if it's truly devoid of goodness, then how can Rabbi Nachman say, find the good in there? Because Rabbi Nachman continues that ultimately, the function of the mind which chooses to see good is in truth the very thing that reveals the good that wasn't there previously. That our outlook, the way that we look at other people and other situations and the day-to-day -day function of our life, by seeing good, by choosing to see good, we uncover the good. Ah, the good didn't exist there previously. Through the power of machshava, through the power of thinking positively, through the power of affirming this moment, I reveal a hidden goodness that was not present there previously. Why? Because if I choose to affirm this moment, then who's going to tell me it's bad? I'm the one in charge of how I view the world. The ultimate Bechira that Rabbi Nachman is giving us, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us, that Rabbi Nachman is revealing, that Hashem gives us, is the capacity to choose to see good. On all other accounts, we're all but handcuffed. Human beings are profoundly limited in the power or the control that we have over the day-to-day -day functioning of our experience in this world. But in the collapse of the myth of power, in the collapse of our control over reality, in that encounter with powerlessness and that gaze into the abyss that Rabbi Nachman speaks about in the 64th teaching, and that encounter and that acknowledgement that this world is more hellish than it is paradise, Rabbi Nachman offers us the singular power that remains in spite of all powerlessness, which is our capacity to choose how we would like to think about the given moment in front of us. This moment I can choose to see good. This person, this encounter I can choose to see good. Why? Pasuk Rabbi Nachman chooses to use reads as follows. It's the Pasuk in Tehillim, in the 37th chapter of Tehillim. And there's a little bit more, or a little bit more, and the person is no longer wicked. And you contemplate their place, and they are no longer. So this this little bit more, is what Rabbi Nachman is revealing. That when we look at the world, when we look at life, when we look at any given situation, it appears to be exactly what it is. Everything is marked by the parameters and the boundaries and the truth value of what is encountered in that moment. And a person has to be honest about reality. When I'm looking at something, it's not enough for me to say this is good also, if it's truly bad. 
I have to acknowledge the ugliness. I have to acknowledge the brokenness of that situation. But what Rabbi Nachman is pointing out is that when all is said and done, even when I have looked at everything there is to see about this person, that experience, that thing, that emotion, that reality, there's an ode ma'at, there's just a little bit more, there's a moreness that was not previously seen yet through the light of consciousness becomes uncovered. That there is always just a little bit more pockets of excess that I can spread out experience and I can force myself to see the little bit of good that exists even in the polar opposite of good. And that little bit of good, that ode ma'at, that little bit more, it's not that I didn't see it previously when I meditated or paid attention. When I meditated and pay attention, there was nothing good. But that od ma'at is opened up by my choice to see goodness. Whatever it is that a person encounters, from Aleph to Tuf, from A to Z, from the most beautiful to the most grotesque and abject human experience, there is no situation that is devoid of the capacity of being broken open by the light of the mind. Because positivity is not simply saying that things are pleasurable or good. That's the opposite of simcha. If we think simcha is pleasure, if we think simcha is something that makes us feel good, then we're never going to be happy. We'll live our lives as if simcha is some sort of destination that we have to arrive at. And therefore we will live our lives as if we're always one step behind where we want to be or one step beyond where we want to be, but always in the wrong place. It's only when a person comes to recognize that simcha is a state of mind. Simcha is a reality in the mind, and therefore our tzaddikim could command us to be besimcha. The Torah could command us to be besimcha. The Torah can punish us for not being besimcha. If simcha was just an emotional result of reality, then how could the Torah come and punish us? If simcha is a natural reaction to the external reality of my life, how can I be punished for not being happy? for not finding positivity. But the secret is that positivity is a choice that a person makes. It's a fragile joy, it's a delicate joy, but it's a koach in the mind. It's a decision, it's a framing that I make. So the Pasuk that says, rasha, if I can look at that difficulty, that wickedness, that darkness in my life, no matter how slight or no matter how severe, I come to realize that rasha, I can find that ode. I can find that moreness that survives the end of things, that more that is revealed even after when the end is said and done. And then I can come to realize that there's no Russia here. There's only the light of a Kaddish Baruch Hu that gives life to things. There can be no situation, no person, no experience that is utterly devoid of the light of godliness because if something were to be utterly devoid of the light of godliness, then it wouldn't exist. There can be no such thing. There can be nothing that is without a spark of enlivening infinite light. And it's the mind that is capable of uncovering this. And when I can live that avoda of v'od ma'at ve'in rasha, of finding that moreness within experience, of carving out a space that was not previously there to uncover the possibility of joy, so then we can understand the end of the Pasuk. V'et bonanta al makomo ve'inenu. At that point, I will contemplate their place and it won't be. Rabbi Nachman says something amazing. He says that when I'm looking at other people and I'm looking at circumstances and situations in the world, I look at them and I see their stuckness and I say, there's no good here. 
But when I make the decision to believe in the good that exists within everything in spite of the fact that it's not present right now, when I believe in that good, when I'm done that person, when I find a good possible rationale for why they behave that way, I look back to where they were previously when I saw them, and lo and behold, they're not there because they've already ascended from the moment that they were in. Because by me judging them favorably, I quite literally elevate the experience. in Russia, When I can uncover that irreducible goodness that exists, even within the darkest darkness, I look back to where that darkness was previously, and it's not there anymore. Because by me judging the situation favorably, judging the other person favorably, I have quite literally elevated reality. Because reality is nothing but my own viewpoint. Reality is nothing other than my experience. And Rav Nachman continues, and it's not enough to judge others favorably. And more significantly, a person has to look at themselves this way. A person has to recognize that even when we feel that we're a Russia, even when we feel that there's absolutely nothing good in us, there's no source of joy within us, there's nothing real, there's nothing authentic, we're caught up in all of our constricted forms of mindfulness. At the end of the day, a person has to judge themselves favorably. A person has to believe in the more that exists within the less. A person has to believe that even beyond my constriction and my boundaries of self, there exists a field beyond good and evil, a field that is blessed with the smells of Gan Eden, the Chakal Tapuchen Kadishin, the orchard of holy apples, wherein nothing is bad. There's no badness there. There's only the light of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And more importantly than judging others and more importantly than judging human experience, we have to judge ourselves favorably because we are our harshest critics. And Rabbi Nachman says, it's impossible that there's nothing good in you. It's impossible that there hasn't been some desire to be better, some movement towards the light, some extra emphasis on fighting for joy. And you have to uncover that. And then almost as if Rabbi Nachman was reading our minds, he says, and even when you find and uncover that positive point, the positive spark within your life, when you pay attention enough to it, you'll find that it's filled with worms and dirt. You'll come to doubt your motives. You'll come to question your motivation. And you'll come to doubt the veracity or the value of that good spark that you encountered. And instead of saying, okay, I'm sorry you failed, Rabbi Nachman says, you just have to look deeper. Because good is irreducible. That means when all is said and done, no matter where the dust settles, there will always already remain an impossibly present spark of goodness. No matter what a person has done, no matter what a person is doing, no matter what life looks like, there is never a situation where the light of the mind cannot choose to find an irreducible spark of goodness that exists there. Never. Because we're the ones in charge of uncovering goodness. And the Bechira that exists is to say, yes, yes, I'm worthy. Yes, I can move forward. To the point that when we contemplate ourselves, we no longer see ourselves. By choosing to see good in ourselves, we can no longer see our dark parts. We have to move away the dust and seek those positive sparks again. And then when the dust covers it up, we have to dig deeper. And when we're capable of doing that, we're capable of singing out to God. And this is the next part of the teaching where Rabbi Nachman says the goal of finding those nikudos of ode, that moreness that exists within us at every moment, that capacity to take the breath and say everything is okay right now, 
I take it upon myself to validate the goodness, to believe in God in this moment, to believe that this moment is okay. That doesn't mean to find some strange, convoluted explanation of why the situation is good or why the traffic jam saved me from this or that. That's wonderful. That's Hashkacha Pratis, but that's not what Rabbi Nachman is saying. It's saying, I can find good even when there is absolutely no rationale towards why this experience was valuable. Specifically in those places where darkness pervades, it's specifically there where I have to uncover the more that exists the infinitude that exists even within our finite restrictions. And when we're capable of finding those nukudas of Ode, then we can say, Azamra la laikimba Odi. I will cry out, I will sing out to God, but Odi with the moreness that I find within myself. These points, these sparks of goodness that we encounter throughout our days and ourselves and others in the world, they're musical notes which create the song of our lives. And each and every person has their own song. And Rabbi Nachman teaches us very clearly that song is not some spontaneous expression of joy, but rather a joy that emerges out of the deepest confrontation with difficulty. Music is not linear. Music is an ascent and a descent into darkness. It's consonant chords and dissonant chords. It's the unity between light and darkness. It's rooted in expressivity and constriction. Songs come from the Levian, representative constriction and measure. It's the song of Yonah. It's the music that emerges from the depths of the sea. Rabbi Nachman teaches in the 64th teaching that there comes a time in a person's life where they encounter the apikorsis, the heresy of the halal hapanui, the emptiness and the impossibility of affirming belief in God in the vacant space of reality. Those unanswerable questions. And the only way to confront that, Rabbi Nachman says, is through silence. And if I could be silent in that place, then I can uncover the nigun, the song of that place. So by uncovering the song within ourselves, it is by no mean a strictly positive experience, but rather is an experience that descends and ascends and moves deep into the darkness and uncovers the light within the darkness and ascends up to the light and finds the darkness in the light and back and forth and up and down. It's the empty space in the flute, the empty space in the guitar that allows music to emerge. For if fullness existed, there would be no room for the song of the individual. So it's azamr la when I fight for that ode in my life, when I fight to uncover the irreducible goodness that exists no matter what, it's at that point that I'm capable of uncovering the infinite possibility of joy. Rabbi Nachman says explicitly, this Eitzah is in order to stay away from sadness. He says it. The whole purpose of this teaching is to save us from sadness. Because when we look at ourselves with empty eyes, there's no ode, there's no more, all there is is what is. But what Rabbi Nachman is uncovering for us is the capacity of a persistent joy, of an obstinate joy, of a brazen joy that says, sure, I've reached my limit, but who cares? I'm going to uncover positivity here. And it's that positivity that pulls us out of the dirt. When I can sing out to God with the more that exists within me, then I'm capable of finding the goodness. And by finding the goodness of choosing to see the good, I can teach myself how to sing. I can teach myself to sing from wherever I'm at. I can sing to HaKadosh Baruch Hu from the dirt, from the sky, from the, the water, wherever I am. I carry a song with me, like David Malka Mashiach. Nobody like David HaMelech suffered. Nobody found himself so far gone like David Malka Mashiach. Yet nevertheless, it was David HaMelech who taught us how to sing, how to cry out to God. 
how to find godliness even in the most broken of places. And so Be'ezra Sashem, the light of Rabbi Nachman, the light of Davin Melech, the light of Hasidus, the light of the Torah Kadesha, the ultimate goal is to teach us that no matter what happens in a person's life, we have the capacity to choose to see good, to uncover that moreness that exists within our experience and to recognize that there is quite literally no limitation for a Jew because the soul of a Jew is unlimited. And even when we think we've reached the end, there's always more beyond the end that we can uncover. And by choosing to think this way, our lives begin to be lived this way. And the more we think about this, the more we experience it. And the more we experience it, the more we think about it. And ultimately, that's our freedom. Our freedom is to choose to think positively, to be koifef l'simcha, to compel ourselves to joy. As Rabbi Nachman says, mitzvah gedol b'simcha tamid. It's a mitzvah. If it's a mitzvah, it implies that it is accomplishable by anybody and everybody. If it were not possible, it could not be a commandment. It's possible because it's dependent on the thought of the mind itself. And when we compel ourselves to joy, we'll come to believe in joy a little bit more. And when we believe in joy, we come to actually experience joy. And that's the goal, to uncover the simcha, to uncover the everlasting joy that exists even within the most minuscule elements of what it means to be a human being in this world. And Be'ezra Sashem, we should be zaycha should be zaycha to enter into the months of tshuva, to enter into a time of contemplation about ourselves and to recognize that it's tully on one thing, that it's only through joy that we're capable of emerging out of our stuckness. That joy itself is the way that we save ourselves. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.